This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading Thomas and Beulah, a poetry collection by Rita Dove. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1987 and is inspired by the lives of Dove's grandparents. Rita Dove grew up in Ohio, but she spent time in Iowa earning her MFA from the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop in 1977. She has become one of the most celebrated poets in American history. She was named U.S. Poet Laureate in 1993, the first black American to fill that role. She has received the National Humanities Medal, the National Medal of Arts, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Her most recent work is Playlist for the Apocalypse, released in 2021. She is the Henry Hoynes Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Virginia, and she is on the line with me now. Rita Dove, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And I have so many things that I want to talk to you about, but I do want to start with this beautiful collection, Thomas and Beulah, inspired by your grandparents. Can you tell me how it came about? Wow. Well, you know, I I spent time with my grandmother after my grandfather passed. I must have been about uh, in my early teens. And she would tell stories about their lives when they were younger, when they were courting and things like that. And I think it was a way for her to work through her grief and her loneliness. Um, I, as a young person who thought everyone over the age of 18 was old and, you know, not to be, you know, looked at, was astonished that the depth and the intricacy of their lives when they were young. And that made me realize that I, I never thought of them as young. And that was actually the beginning of that book, though it took, of course, many, many years before I came back to that, the idea of of uncovering or recovering the interior lives, you know, the interior lives of these people who I had regarded merely as my grandparents. And uh, so it was done out of that love. Yes, that love. And their two stories are told one after the other. First, your grandfather, Thomas, and then your grandmother, and you call her Beulah in this collection, although that wasn't that wasn't actually her name. Why did you choose to call her Beulah? Well, her name was um, Georgiana, and as as a as a poet, Georgiana is a very long name. It takes up an entire line practically, and uh, it as I began to work on these poems, I wanted a name that seemed to fit with Thomas. And uh, Thomas, you know, was, uh, I always think of Thomas the doubter, you know, in the Bible. And that then led me to thinking about, well, what names are so specific to their lifespan, you know, the times in which they lived? And would immediately, would immediately, if you heard it, say, ah, must be from there. And Beulah was a name that I then um, hit upon. Uh, So I had known some Beulahs from her generation uh, who had gone to um, their church. And so I changed the name. And that perhaps is the beginning of where uh, true stories begin to mesh or meld with imagination or imagined stories. 
Which is something that has carried through many of your other collections as well. Uh, I want to ask, though, you told these stories one after another, and they shared so many years together, but so few of the poems intertwine. Hmm. And that tells us so much. What do you want that to communicate? Well, first of all, that each of us carries with us our own individual history and uh, trajectory, which sometimes touches on others and sometimes doesn't. But but even when it does, I think often uh, we tend to romanticize that connection that, oh, they saw, they were there at the same time, therefore they saw this in exactly the same way. And that's just not the way a human being works. Um, and uh, so I, I initially I had thought, uh, Charity, of, of trying to put one poem next to another, you know, trying to put uh, one of Thomas's poems and then having one of, of Beulah's. And then I realized that the things that were important to them, the things that they remembered, the things that marked them were different. They occurred at different points in their life. And yet, in the end, they uh, they had a kind of unspoken connection uh, with a shared period, a shared love. Uh, that's the way marriage works, I think. I would love for you to read a poem that really speaks exactly to that from the collection. Would you read Company for us? Company. No one can help him anymore. Not the young thing next door in the red pedal pushers, not the canary he drove distracted with his mandolin. There'll be no more trees to wake him in moonlight, nor a single dry spring morning when the fish are lonely for company. She's standing there telling him, give it up. She is weary of sirens and his face worn with salt. If this is code, she tells him, listen, we were good, though we never believed it. And now he can't even touch her feet. That's as close as we really come to a a love poem in this collection, although they clearly shared love and a life together. You received the Pulitzer Prize for this collection in 1987. How did that change your life? Oh, oh it changed it so dramatically. I, I, if if we're thinking of things as I mean, post and, and pre-pandemic, there's a point in my life where I think you know there's a pre-Pulitzer and a post-Pulitzer, because what happened that first of two things. The wonderful thing is that this collection, which told the story of two very loving but ordinary people to whom nothing dramatic happens to who um you know you wouldn't find under times most uh, influential people that this resonated with um the, the reading public and so that Pulitzer was a, a, a kind of a way of saying yes th- their lives mattered that was so important to me. In terms of my life, however, um, what happened after that it was it was beautiful that to be recognized like that. I felt that the world came crashing in. In a sense, I became a very public figure uh, 
which was something that I had not planned on. I always thought a poet just kind of, uh, you know, you would be there in your study writing your poems and a few people would read them and to suddenly be put on a on a world stage was a bit daunting, I can say. But as a, one of my colleagues said to me, he said, you'll learn, <laughs> you know, and I think I've been learning ever since. I think you've done very, very well with it. <laughs> you had already, before you came to the University of Iowa, you had already shown your to, yourself to be an extraordinary student what brought you to Iowa City in 1975 and to the Writers' Workshop? Hmm. Well, in 1975, there seemed to be only a, a, a handful, not even a handful of programs uh, at universities across this country which had a creative writing component and in which you could get a terminal degree, an MFA in creative writing. And Iowa was the flagship place uh, to go. I really wanted to write poetry. It was my bliss, and it's the thing I wanted to follow. I loved many other things, and it's true that I did, um, I was a good student and had gotten a Fulbright to Germany, for instance, things like that, which could have indicated that I could have gone in a different direction. But my real and true love, which seemed to encompass all of my interests, was to write. So I thought, if I can get into this place, then I have two years of um, in which I don't have to worry too much about, you know, what I'm going to, where I'm going to get my food and all that kind of stuff, in which to write. And if I have to go and get another job to earn a living after this, then so be it. But this is my chance. And that's why I had applied to Iowa. And uh, it was an opportunity to hone those skills and with some of the best poets writing in the country that day as as uh, professors, uh, what's, what's not to want? <laughs> you know, that's why. When you were here... You were the only black student in the workshop. What was that like? It was rough. I will not, uh, you know, sugarcoat this. It was rough. Um, uh, I felt that I was, uh, everyone was waiting for me to comment on or to write poems about the race. And I wanted to learn how to write poems so that I could write a the poems that I wanted to write, which dealt with people, some of whom were black and some of whom were not, uh, that the pressure uh, and the fear of being labeled was difficult to to write through. Um, and uh, at the same time, when I got here, I discovered that one of the, uh, when I got to Iowa, I discovered that one of the real difficulties was the very competitive nature of the workshop. And at that time, a certain insistence that there was a, a, you know, a kind of poem that passed muster and everything else did not. Uh, Narrative poetry was out, for instance, and a lot of these poems are fairly narrative, very straightforward in that sense. So um, I had some wonderful teachers who helped me chart those kind of waters. I had some very contentious uh, classroom situations, which were which at least helped me develop a, a thick skin, 
and I learned a lot. I learned sometimes in adversity, uh, you know, against the grain, but um, it has helped me. And uh, as I've gone through life, and there's all sorts of, you know, things that one has to negotiate in life, it has helped me um, not be blindsided by some stuff. That's all I'll say on that. I'm talking with former U.S. Poet Laureate and Pulitzer Prize winner Rita Dove about her 1986 collection, Thomas and Beulah. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading Thomas and Beulah, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poetry collection published in 1986 by Rita Dove. She went on to become the U.S. Poet Laureate and one of the most celebrated American poets of all time. She is with me now. And before the break, we were talking about your experience as a student at the Iowa Writers Workshop, where you were the only black student at the time. And you once said that, quote, being a student in a creative writing workshop is a very naked experience and is the only person representing any other culture. You're setting yourself up doubly, which is why I think it's so important. My God, we've just got to break down those barriers. And you broke down so many of those barriers yourself as a poet and now as a teacher. There are so many things in the world that we can look at and be frustrated with our lack of progress. But what is your reflection on progress for writers of color in those spaces? I do think that things have improved so, so vastly. Um, it, just to look at the number of poetry books that are being published and the great variety of them. And then you look at who is, you know, people who are getting prizes and uh, it, there's such a diversity that's happening. Um, I, I just feel like it's a real blossoming. Some of that is, of course, not just the passage of time, but really concerted efforts of, of certain individuals, Kave Kanam, which is a workshop of four African-American poets, a low residency workshop, uh, helped to, has really birthed, I think, generations, a couple of generations of young African-American poets. And, um, you know, the same thing has happened for Asian-Americans. So it's it's just fan, fantastic to see. But also there's a great... Um, I guess a kaleidoscopic, a near kaleidoscopic range of ways of which the idea of a poem is being addressed. Is a poem, you know, a lyric or a narrative? Is a poem, can it be connected to drawings? Can it be connected to 3D um, experience? Uh, all of these things, and spoken word, of course, all of these things are being shared thanks to, in a certain way, social media is a little easier and, and swifter to share all of these ideas that then connect to what, how do we communicate and how can we use this language that we have to communicate in ways that are, that are deeper 
than the daily uh, conversation. It's, it's, it's a wonderful time to be, I think, writing as a young poet, as any kind of poet, actually. It's a wonderful time to be writing. Well, it's a wonderful time to be reading. And and I also want to make it clear that I'm not making light of any of the challenges that people face. Just being a poet is challenging in and of itself on a whole lot of levels. I, I do want to ask you, I asked you to look back at this work that you published in 1986, and I don't know how often you do that, but what is it like to revisit this work now? Hmm. So interesting because I I did go back and actually read the book again. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, and and what you know what happens is that you know at least for me as a poet, I, after finishing the book, um, I had to step back from it for a while, and then I went on readings, and so I would read certain poems and you know try to give a sense of the arc. And after a while, the next book comes out. And so, the you know, the, you tend to put it aside. And I sat down to read it again. I I felt an immense um, sense of, it was a reunion. And I felt both that I knew these people very well. And at the same time, they there was a mystery to the two of them that I, I, I really felt... You know, that as a as a younger poet, I had managed to get at, and I thought, "Wow, I didn't know I had done that. That's pretty good." <laughs> it felt really good to go back. Well, you've you've lived so much of your life now, and shared a lot of life experiences that your grandparents would have shared by this point in your life. So i I can imagine that that makes things feel a little bit different. It does. It does. I, uh, I'm i a grandmother now. Um, so uh, with my granddaughter, who is eight years old, I I think about how she must look at me as, you know, what I'm, her grandmother, but, you know, no life beyond that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. And, and, I, and someday, I, some, she'll know. <laughs> someday she'll know. But that and that feeling of wanting to tell parts of your life to the younger people and to reminisce, I, I, I understand that that longing now. Uh, the, the, the work, the beautiful work of a marriage is something that I'm, you know, still going through, you know. And so, uh, yes, some of these things are we share, Beulah and Thomas and I. You are, of course, still writing, still teaching, producing incredible work. I mentioned Playlist for the Apocalypse, which feels very of this moment in time and continues to, to feel very on the nose. You also are going to be returning to Iowa this spring to receive an honorary doctorate from the University of Iowa. This will be your 29th honorary doctorate, which is a pretty good number. But what does it mean to come back to Iowa and receive this honor? It really feels so wonderful to be validated or to feel that recognition from um, an a university that I still remember arriving at and thinking, oh my gosh, what have I 
done this is also foreign and and large vast really um you know and then to come back and receive this honorary doctorate it uh, i don't know it feels like a circle has been completed it, it feels very very good rita dove thank you so much for sharing your time and sharing your work with us today it's been a pleasure charity thank you Rita Dove, former U.S. Poet Laureate, one of the most celebrated American poets of all time. Her most recent collection is Playlist for the Apocalypse. And today we're talking about her Pulitzer Prize winning poetry collection published in 1986, Thomas and Beulah, inspired by the lives of Dove's grandparents. And now it's time to introduce our expert readers. With me now is Tracy Morris. She is the writer and editor of several books, is a poet and performer. Her most recent book is who Do With Words, a Blurred Love Tone Manifesto. She is also a professor of poetry at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, the first Black woman to hold that role of being a tenured full professor, Tracy? Uh, yeah. Well, that, that's remarkable, and I, I, congratulations. It also was a long time coming in listening to Rita Dove reflect on her time at the workshop as the only Black student at the workshop. What are some of the thoughts that go through your head? Well, it's, it's very intense. Uh, you know, she's uh, so, so highly celebrated now, but just to think how... Uh, small she was meant to feel at the time is actually quite heartbreaking uh to hear that she became uh tougher and smarter and uh better uh at her craft because of what she uh had to deal with at the workshop as well as it's despite what she had to deal with the workshop it's a really interesting contrast that i think what you see in this collection is an insistence of excellent poetry, as well as the insistence on telling stories that need to be told that hadn't been told. Uh, and, and so it's it's really quite extraordinary to hear her remark on her challenges and to see the collection that emerged because she was brave enough to meet them head on and continue to do her work anyway. And I, I know that you have been familiar with a lot of her work for a long time. This was the first time you really dove into this collection. What was your sort of first impression? Well, you know, it's kind of hard uh, to some of these stories, some of these poems, it's hard to read because they evoke so many other kind of stories that I know from my own family. But I'm really interested in the way that she set up the collection. Yeah, we will. We will dig into that structure. And I, I think that's the perfect moment to bring our other expert reader into the conversation. Deborah Marcourt is also here. She is Iowa's Poet Laureate. She is an author, poet and musician, a distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences at Iowa State University. And her most recent book is The Night We Landed on the Moon, Essays Between Exile and Belonging. Welcome, Deb. Thank you, Charity. It's so nice to be here with Tracy Morris. And as Tracy was just alluding to, we, we will dive into the structure of this collection in, in just a couple of minutes because it 
just tells us so much. But this is a work that that you have a long relationship with, Deb. Tell me about that. Well, I've I've been teaching Rita Dove's work for a long time, and um, I, I especially love her collection, Grace Notes. But I've taught Thomas and Beulah several times because I'm very interested in the book length poem, and you know a. a a book of poems that's not just the last, you know, the the poems that a poet has written in the last five years sort of put together into a collection artfully, but a very conscious and intentional uh, collection and design uh, sort of under one large overarching conceit. And so, um, you know, there's a real blossoming of these book length poems now. So her book was, I think, kind of an early, earlier example of one. Well, and it's a, it's interesting to think about the different way and you are both poets, so you can tell me more about this, but the different way that a poet would approach a work like this uh, as as much as a collection of poetry shows us the incredible breadth and depth of work of a poet, a, a collection like this, where all of the poems are connected and where obviously the, the poets set out to create this book-like collection. I mean, Deb, that, that sounds like an incredible undertaking. Yeah. And, you know, as Dove mentioned in her interview, um, at the time that she went through graduate school, you know, narrative poetry was sort of frowned on. So, you know, here we have a collection and I think she's elsewhere described the, the poems as sort of beads on a necklace. So they're they're poems that have a kind of a narrative feel to them. And then they're strung together into a larger overarching narrative. And um, so, you know, I mean, that that's an idea in poetry that falls in and out of fashion. And Tracy, that, that I think that brings us to the specific structure of this collection, because you open the book and first you read about Thomas and then you read about Beulah. They are, are separate and together at the same time. Tell me some of your thoughts of, about how Dove chose to structure this. Well, it's interesting that at the beginning of the book, she insists on us as the readers reading the poems in the direction in which she is presenting them. And uh, this is actually kind of a bold move. I mean, you know, we poets, we just glad somebody reads something, you know, but for her to say these poems are designed to be put in a particular order, and that's how I want you to read them, tells us that she's being very deliberate about not just the narrative content and not only the overarching arc, but the structure, the overall structure of the book itself. So, one of the things that I initially felt reading the two sections was that that Beulah in this section insisted on having her own space. And there's this, this distinction between the two of them that I think is quite fascinating. It starts off with Thomas letting us, us becoming familiar with Thomas as an artist, as a musician, as a performer. I, I'm curious, uh, Deb, as a, as a fellow uh, performer, what you think about how Thomas is framed in that way. And then when the reality of a family hits, how that's kind of put to the side and they become this unit that has to raise these kids and feed them. And that the depression is part of what they have to consider. So what does it mean for Thomas to set his sort of self, his self perception as an artist to the side? and then become this family man who has this kind of responsibility. And I think by dividing the book the way that, that she has, there's a setup for Beulah's separation of space and how she insists on having this life of the mind 
despite the crushing pressure of being a homemaker. And it's, it's almost like Beulah insists or Dove insists that Beulah insists on having her own space and not sublimate her role strictly to the family. And that's kind of unconventional. You think that the Thomas is the one who's eschewing his artistry and uh, for the most part to become a family man. And Beulah, who is the homemaker primarily, is insisting on having an interior life that's distinct from caretaking. And, and so I think that's really interesting. I also feel, just one more note about this, that there's a precision and economy in the way that Dove is approaching language that she uh, does because that's what the poems require, but that she lets the readers in by giving us this chronology. So the chronology is like a really cultivated collection, if you will, of footnotes that sort of orients us when we go back to the poems, but they don't interfere with like really obvious markers within the context of the poems themselves, because that's not how people think. That's not how people talk. When you're in a moment, you don't say, oh, today is this particular day. You just think it's today. And so the way that she used the chronology at the end of the book allows for a much more thoughtful consideration within the poems and throughout the entire cycle of poems. And and this book, when we do dig into that chronology, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but when we dig into that chronology, we do see that this this these lives are are sort of bookended by some of the the huge upheavals in our nation's history with the Great Migration and the Depression. And uh, at the end of this collection, we are in the Civil Rights Movement and the years following the Civil Rights Movement. So we'll talk more about that in just a moment. We do need to take a short break. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and we're talking about Rita Dove's poetry collection, Thomas and Beulah. It was published in 1986, and she won the Pulitzer surprise for this collection. Of course, she went on to become U.S. Poet Laureate and is now one of the most celebrated American poets of all time. With me, Tracy Morris. She is a writer and editor of several books, a poet and a performer and professor of poetry at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, and Deborah Marcourt, Iowa's Poet Laureate, an author, poet, and musician, and a distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences at Iowa State University. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's the Talk of Iowa Book Club from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have been reading Thomas and Beulah. It's a poetry collection written by Rita Dove, published in 1986 and inspired by the lives of Dove's grandparents. It is narrative poetry. These poems are collected and connected and tell true stories from the lives of her grandparents and, of course, a little bit of fiction mixed in there as well. Rita Dove is a former U.S. Poet Laureate 
and Pulitzer Prize winner for this collection. Also, she attended the Iowa Writers Workshop. With me are expert readers, Tracy Morris, the writer and editor of several books, a poet and performer, and professor of poetry at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. Deborah Marcourt is also here, Iowa's Poet Laureate. She is an author, poet, and musician, and a distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences at Iowa State University. And Deb, before the break, Tracy was was mentioning the chronology that's in the back of this collection that helps us really situate Thomas and Beulah in history. Now, I know that that you flip to the back right away because you want to know where we are in time, right? (laughs) Well, I've learned my lesson because so many poets are using notes at the back of their books now, and sometimes it's helpful to have that information while you're reading the book. So um, it does inform, obviously. I think maybe the, the thing to do is read the entire book and then then read it over with informed by the notes at the end, which tell us the chronology of the lives lived. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think it's so important to, to have that understanding as well, because we bring so much of our knowledge uh, of history into understanding these lives. Yeah. And, you know, Dove says in the interview, so interesting, she says, you know, it's, it, it's chronicle of, of lives in which nothing really dramatic happens but we do see these incredible dramas, as you know, Tracy was pointing out. Um, these are people who had incredible gifts, um, imagination, skills, talents. You know, Thomas as well as Beulah. Beulah was a great dreamer, and it seemed like she had an incredible kind of intellectual life. She, in her spare time, thought about Paris and Versailles and the minor- Turkish minarets, and so she obviously was well-read. And um, and she's you know attempting to raise four ch- four daughters and really Thomas is not crazy about having, you know, girl time four times four. And so it, it's possible that it's kind of a little bit of a, a thankless job to raise these daughters. Um, and then we see Thomas, you know, his, his talent at the beginning is evident, but he goes through that, in, that really incredible um, tra- tragic um, episode where he loses limb, his, his sort of seemed to be best friend and, and uh, co-musician and he picks up Lem's um, mandolin and kind of goes on with music, sort of with Lem uh, haunting him, I think. And we, But we start to see the indignities that time just sort of foists upon him, like aging and, um, you know, he, go, he does factory work and he ends up having to do things, you know, to make a, a living. And, um, and then we, eventually we see him through to the, you know, the, the diminishment of his, of his physical body. And so it's a real incredible story of, you know, two full lives lived. Um, and, you know, they, they are living and they are, and they are actually thriving, you know, in terms of having children and getting children through all of the struggles of, you know, raising children. But there is a question about whether or not they were really allowed to thrive. Um, and also whether or not they really truly understood or appreciated the potential for the love in their lives. And let's let's focus, I think, on on Thomas for a while, because that that is where we start in this collection. And uh, Deb, you mentioned that it starts with a tragedy. Thomas and his best friend Lem are traveling on a riverboat. They're headed north. And uh, Thomas uh, and Lem are looking out over the water and they see this false island and Lem decides to to swim to it. He jumps overboard and he never comes back. And. 
Tracy, let, let's talk about Thomas and how we get to know him. I mean, we meet him in that that horrible moment, and and I think we see him carry that with him. I do. I think it's it's really interesting uh, what Deb was saying about uh, the thankless task of raising four girls. One of the ways that I took it is that it was the thankless task of not having a son, which is a little different uh, because I think he wanted in some ways male companionship and someone to share the part of his life that he couldn't really share with his wife because she wasn't, that wasn't part of her story with him in a way. I mean, it was an introduction, but it wasn't the story. And so when you see this opportunity for Thomas to glob on to his son-in-law, it's like, oh, finally a son. I also just found, you know, it really intense and interesting uh, for the only grandson uh, so far, as far as we know, in this collection to be named Malcolm. I don't think that was a coincidence. Uh, as you think about the aspirations that were connected to Malcolm X, uh, Malcolm X died in 1965 and the child Malcolm in Thomas and Beulah was born in 1951. So he was about 14 years old. Um, and I just think about, you know, what you were saying about thriving and the missed opportunities and chances and how even in just the name Malcolm, there are all these kind of resonances in which the son, uh, the aspirations of Thomas and loss are conveyed. Uh, so it's a, it's a bittersweet story, but the, in the context of the extremity of Black life and suffering, uh, they made out pretty well, uh, but you do get a very strong sense of what was missed in terms of the potential of these two people, as well as other members of their family, besides their granddaughter, Lorita Dove, of course, who, who's, who was the chronicler of this family and also the opportunities that, that, that the world didn't have because they couldn't fully flourish, as, as Deb has referred to. And Deb, I would love to hear your thoughts about Thomas. I think one of the interesting things about the collection is because it starts with Thomas. I gave him my empathy immediately. And then when we dug into Beulah, I started to have complicated emotions <laughs> at times about about Thomas. And, you know, we know marriage is complicated and life is complicated and the lives of men and women, particularly during this time, were very different. But tell me, tell me what you think about Thomas. Well, I had a similar experience reading the book the first time, you know, because we we learn about Thomas's um, desires and foibles and, um, you know, the, the way that his his life kind of plays out. We learn that story first and then we and then we go and we start to hear about Beulah's story and we get that other side of the story. Um, and I think, you know, I just want to admire Dove's craft for a second, because um, in that second poem in the collection, uh, Variation on Pain, you know, she uses her knowledge actually about the mandolin because the mandolin has two strings for every note. It's a, um, it has four, you know, four tones, um, but it has two strings per note. And so she uses that double string in the, in the um, mandolin to talk about the way that now Thomas is moving forward and living his life and Lem's life as well. Uh, and the mandolin is an embodiment of that sort of double lived life. 
and we see that haunting. But I think I, I agree with what you're saying, Charity, about um, about that opening poem, because not only does Lem jump off and swim to the island, but Thomas actually kind of dares him. And so, you know, he bears not only the loss, but also the guilt over what, you know, what he had done. And so, you know, we just see him all the way through kind of losing things in the way that age and um, getting older and getting more infirm, you know, is, is a story that we all live through as, you know, human physical bodies. So, um, yeah, I do, I do, um, I do empathize with him. Like, for example, in definition, in the face of unnamed fury, he tries to play mandolin and he has blisters on his fingers because he hasn't played for a while. I mean, anyone who's played a stringed instrument knows that feeling. So then when I go over to Beulah, suddenly I have to adjust and recalibrate everything I think about what I know about Thomas, because I see the life that she, and she's a much more internal person. And so those poems are much more kind of poignant and, you know, very, very um, internal because she's musing a lot. She's thinking a lot. Yeah, imagining and dreaming. And of course, this is the experience I, I'm i guessing that Rita Dove wanted us to have was the the needing to, to rethink and, and recalibrate and think about their relationship, but also how they are influenced and in some ways confined by those forces around them, by poverty, by race, and Beulah in particular by gender. And uh, Deb, I'll let you go first with Beulah and then Tracy jump in in just a moment. But let's talk about Beulah. You mentioned she has this internal life, but she's she's confined by the limitations of being a woman. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can see that all the way through, um, you know, from when the... Um, when Thomas comes to, you know, sort of propose and claim her hand and, and he says, I'll give you a, I'll give her a good life, you know, to the father. And then when she's given away in the wedding, the father, you know, says to her, um, each hurt swallowed is a stone or something like that. That's kind of his, his advice to her. And, you know, she's not really given very much um, credit or, or agency kind of in inside the structure of, all, of her life, but she does build a life and it is largely a, a life of imagination. Then of course, nurturance, you know, she's raising these, these children and we get to see them by the end in Wingfoot Lake. You know, they are, they are children, they're grown, they're, they're, you know, coupled up, they're working, they've got the children of their own. So we see this proliferation of the generations and, and she's done really well, but um, you know, one isn't, I mean, just, I'm left with a feeling of sadness about her life. Tracy, what are your feelings about Beulah? Well, it's hard, you know, her life, it was hard, the kind of life that she had. And she didn't have a lot of options, as many options, because she had children. I don't mean that she didn't have options because she chose to have children. It's the moment that she had children, it all became about the children. And because she had several children, uh, it just was constantly keeping them alive and keeping out themselves together. I thought the the poem Motherhood, when she talks about misplacing the baby <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's just like a really interesting sort of surrealist uh, reference points. I, I think the way that I read this experience, this poem is she doesn't literally want her life wrapped up in a baby. 
But then the baby, so the contrast is that the baby gets wrapped up in all of these things, right? And I just find it, uh, it's sort of like the poem next to an anniversary when she talks about swallowing your luck. And I say, well, do you swallow the luck to get it or do you swallow it so that you don't get it? It's just, it's just really, really elegantly precise how they're how she's approaching language and openness and ambiguity in these things. But what I think is is really incredible, including about company, is that she refuses, Bueller refuses to sublimate her thinking, her life of the mind, her beingness for others in a way. Like she knows what she, she has her duty, her responsibility, but she doesn't fundamentally give up her relationship with herself. And I just find that incredibly moving, her insistence on having herself for herself. And, and we can only see that because we have this insight in the poems. I mean, you think about the internal lives of all women at this time, and, and that internal life was invisible. And we, we're nearly out of time. So I want to ask each of you, I mean, you, you both have dedicated so much of your lives to poetry. This is a, a narrative collection of poems. It tells a story. And there are many, many ways to tell stories. Tracy, why do you think that telling this in this form with with the the poems that that Rita Dove wrote and the structure and the, you know just the the different sensations the different emotions that that she conveys through her poetry why do you feel like that makes this story so powerful to tell it in this way well you know I just want to go back to what I was saying before insisting on telling her story that Beulah insists on living her life and knowing herself in her story for herself, that Rita Dove is insisting on telling these two stories about her grandparents on her terms, and that she's experiencing her life as a young writer and going through the workshop. And she insists on telling these two types of stories, these types of writings in her own terms. When she says, yeah, I wanna, you know, I may want to talk about Black issues that I want to learn how to be a good poet. I want to be a good poet. I want to study poetry. Is insisting on having the tools to tell the story on her terms. And um, I just want to mention, because I, I, I couldn't close without saying this, that it's people like Rita Dove and Sandra Cisneros and Joy Harjo, those women made it possible for me to be a teacher at the Iowa Writers Workshop and to share my stories and my perspective on stories with my students across various experiences that are not like mine so that we all become better poets together. Uh, and it's in debt to, to Rita Dove insisting on these stories being told on, the, on her terms, on her ancestors' terms, unequivocally that opened up those possibilities that makes the poetry of the world better for everybody. Yeah, we are all so much richer for it. And so we, we have 30 seconds left, Deb, and, and I, I want to, you are Iowa's Poet Laureate. You are the ambassador of poetry to Iowa. And I know, you know, a lot of people are, are reluctant to pick up a collection of poetry. They don't think they can get it. They don't think that they'll understand it. Um, I, I feel like you kind of have to dive in and feel it. But tell me, tell me why people should pick up not just this poetry collection, which they definitely should, but a collection of poetry. 
Well, you know, I think that um, poetry gets to all of these sort of inner spaces, you know, that that have there's really little language that exists in these spaces, these emotional spaces. And um, what poets do is try to craft, you know, unique language that will try to sort of, you know, um, get the ineffable on the page. And so that's what we come away with in this book. And, you know, it creates empathy. I think when we can see a hidden a hidden part of someone's life revealed in a poem and it creates an, not only an in, intimacy, but also an empathy. So, you know, I see my parents' lives differently from reading this book and my grandparents' lives. And, and when I see, you know, someone in the grocery store, um, I might, you know, look at them and think, well, well, what is their life like? Are they dreaming about the Palace of Versailles right now? Are they, you know? Um, and so I think that that's what poetry does. It invites people to understand that there are so many layers uh, of experience and emotion to people. Um, not only people, but the landscape, the, the planet, you know, the environment. And that's the work that poetry can do. Deborah Marcourt and Tracy Morris. Thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. The Talk of Iowa Book Club is produced by me and Matt Alvarez. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. This podcast is a production of Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. See you next time. Mm-hmm.